Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, what he's saying is, think of the most righteous person that you know, and unless you're better than them, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. It seems deflating, but it's hopeful. It's going to be a cause for us to worship our God. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you uh, for being so much better than we thought that you could be, Father. We thank you for revealing to us our true starting point so that we can be reminded that we don't have to claw and fight and scratch our way into your kingdom, uh, but we can be those who just admit our need and are carried there, Father. So we ask that you would carry us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you take your seats? Everything has its place. Uh, Problems in life tend to arise, uh, not just when bad things are present, uh, but when good things find themselves out of place. Everything has their place. My wife and I had AC trouble at our house this week, and what we found out uh, was that uh, what you want are freezing temperatures. That's a good thing. You want that to produce it. Uh, What you don't want is for your AC to produce those on your evaporator coil because then it shuts down. It's a good thing. It's just in the wrong place. Good things in the wrong place or out of place can become very, very bad things. I love my daughter. My daughter is very good most of the times, but there's some times where she gets out of place and she thinks that she's the boss and I have to put her back into her place. She's a very, very good thing, but good things out of place can become very bad things. Contrary to popular belief, I actually don't have anything against vegetables. I really do like them. Um, I just don't like them when they're out of place. And when they're on my plate, they're out of place. Good things are very bad things when they're out of place. My wife is fine with me eating cookies. She knows that crumbs will fall, uh, but she gets mad when she comes and gets ready to go to bed and finds cookie crumbs in the bed. Cookies are good things, but good things can become very, very bad things when they're out of place. So what do you do when a good thing is out of place? There's two things that you can do. You can throw it away and just say, John, here's how we're going to fix this. No more cookies for you ever. Let's take out the AC and just throw it away because it's But you don't do that. What you do when a good thing is out of place in order to fix the problem, you don't have to remove it. You just have to put it uh, back in its right place. I think spiritually, 
we find ourselves in the same place, especially when it comes with Christianity. Like we talked about last week, uh, your vision of something determines how you behave, how you act. Your behavior is never going to rise above your vision. So if you see or think of God wrongly, then you're not rightly going to practice what he tells you to do. And so here's where the problem kind of comes in with Christianity, uh, is sometimes it kind of feels like uh, there's two different visions that the Bible presents of God, right? There's folks that'll read the Old Testament, and what they'll see is this God of law, and you see him like wiping folks out. The ground opens, people fall in. He, he strikes folks dead. It kind of seems like there's this God of law, and then you start with the Gospels, and folks read and say, well, Jesus, he's different. He's this God of love. And so what takes place is you read or folks talk, and they kind of present it as if there's two different visions of God. And where you have two visions, what you have is die vision, right? Die being the pretix, the prefix meaning two, where you have two visions, you have division, and what it does is it seems like there's this war uh, amongst God, and if you don't see God rightly, you're never going to interact with his instructions rightly. So what do we do? Do we just throw one of these away, or do we try to align them? I think all of us by virtue of being people, are just misaligned sometimes. And if you drive in a car and it's misaligned, what will take place is you'll crash. Here's one way I think that we're misaligned when it comes to God's law or relating to God's law, and that's this legalism. You'll have the type of person that majors on God's law. They look to the law, to their obedience, to their performance, to determine if they're right or not with God. So they're only going to talk about behaviors. They're going to major on what it is that you should do in order to please God. And if you want to please God, then you've got to do these things. You know that you have a little bit of this in you. If your thoughts of God's love rise or fall based on how well you did or how poor you did in a day, this is you. If you feel like, man, I really messed up today, God must really hate me, or I really killed it today, God must love me, then what you're doing is you're basing God's love for you on your performance, and let me tell you, that is exhausting. And I want you to know, it does, right, it's not just people that are overtly out there wicked trying to distort the perception of God that find themselves here, people that are well-intentioned find themselves here. All right, listen, all theology is reactive. Theology reacts to something. I think that folks that find themselves here find themselves in a place uh, where they're just trying to get some type of assurance that God loves them and they find themselves and they do wrong and they feel insecure about the relationship that they have with God. So you do what you do in any relationship that you feel insecure in. What do you do? 
you find what they love and you try to work. And you try to work and you try to do all these things. Maybe if I just do all of these things that he'll love me and you find out it's exhausting. And then you start to find out that you can't keep his rules. So what you do is you kind of make up rules of your own and say, all right, if I keep these, will you love me? And you find yourself just striving and striving. Exhaustion leads to reaction. And here's what takes place. Reaction tends to lead to overreaction. That if you find your car skidding towards this ditch, what's the first thing that you do when you find your car skidding? You turn it all the way around. And so what you have is if you've been at this place where you were a legalist and you've just seen how hard it was, you've probably found yourself in a place where you've kind of thrown that out and wholeheartedly embraced God's love. So if the first side was overly concerned about God's law and how we behave, now what you say, but God is a God of grace. And so you omit any talk about behavior. We major on God's love. We remove the category of law and behavior and ethics as if it's a bad thing. It's out of place. But now we say the way that I can fix this is I'll just throw it away. And again, you can get here by being well-intentioned. You see people that find themselves in a place where they're working so hard for God's love and you don't want to see them stressed out. So you overemphasize God's love and say, you don't have to work for it at all. But then that can lead folks to a place where they feel like since performance doesn't determine God's acceptance of me, it doesn't really matter. And I found that recovering legalists can find themselves here And because they are naturally disciplined people, their lives may not immediately spiral out of control, but do you know what? The fruit of your bad theology usually is eaten by the people that follow you. Second century, Marcion, there's this guy. A century after Christ lived, died, and rose, He found himself in the same place where I can't quite connect this God of law and this God of love. But being somebody that lived a hundred or so years after Christ rose from the dead, he said, well, I know that Christ was real and Christ was true. So here's what I'll do. What he did was he rewrote the Bible and he took all the Old Testament references from out of the New Testament. Just said, "All all right, see, now we can just look at God being love. But then his followers took this passage that we just read and they reversed it to where they say Jesus Christ didn't come to fulfill the law. He came to throw it away. And what you see is that it may start well in tension, but if we don't resolve this tension in between a holy God And a loving God, then what we'll do is we'll get a picture of Christianity that is clouded and is not true. And where you have a clouded picture of Jesus, you get people that come to him for the wrong reasons or people that stay away from him for the wrong reasons. But what you get is people that don't come to the real Jesus. 
So what Jesus is getting ready to do right here in this sermon is he's just trying to clarify that, right? What does it really mean to walk with Jesus? Is Jesus about the law or is he about love? And the question that that I would ask you is this. If God foresaw that something bad like this would take place, what do you think that he would do? I think before providing any instructions about ethical behavior change, what he would do is he would clarify what he means. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ does in the sermon that he preaches. Like any good communicator, he foresees objections or misinterpretations. And he says this, look, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Here's what I think that he's trying to get at. To walk with Jesus means that you walk like Jesus. And what that means is that you are in step with God's law every step of the way. To walk with Jesus is to walk like Jesus. And what that means is that you'll find yourself in step with God's law Every step of the way. I'll see if I can do my best to try to break this down. Here's the first thing that we need to know. And let me just say, say this. We're going to spend weeks, really a few months, in the rest of the sermon as Jesus is going to talk about the type of behavior that marks those that are his. So in the next few weeks or months that you come, if you come, it's going to be application heavy about what you should do and how you should live. And so I want you to know that this week is really about interpretation, the lens that you see through this. This is one of the most important passages in his sermon, if not the whole Bible, because the way that you interpret this determines how you see what Jesus came to do. So though it may not feel like application heavy, I want you to remember the Bible is not a mirror, a book for you to see you. The Bible is a window, a book for you to look through and see Jesus. So if you see him clearly, that's one of the most applicable things that we can do here. So here's the first thing that I want you to know. When it comes to God's law or the moral standard that he has, look, Jesus came to reveal God's law, not to repeal God's law. He came to reveal, not to repeal. Here's what I mean by that. Um, From 1877 to 1964, um, Jim Crow laws were in effect. For those of y'all that don't know what that was, uh, after the Civil War, the powers that be that lost were salty. And so what they did is they created these laws in order to enforce the discrimination uh, that had marked our country From the start. So, what they do is they make these unjust laws, these bad laws, meant to enforce segregation, meant to enforce a supremacy of one race, and meant to show the inferiority of one race. Well, one of the great victories of the civil rights movement 
was you had a group of folks that said, wait a minute, those are bad laws. So here's what we need to do. Those are hateful laws, vengeful laws. We need to repeal those laws or abolish those laws and replace it with this new way of how we live. They're bad laws. Let's change them. And what we quickly find out is that laws are always an expression of the heart of the lawgiver. So if you have people with sinful hearts that are in power, they're going to make laws that favor them and hurt somebody else. And so what they say, hey, hey, these are bad laws. Let's get rid of them. Jesus does not come to repeal God's law because God has a good heart. He has this heart of love. So if we look at God's laws, his rules, the way he tells us how how to live, and we see something other than love, it's not because it's a bad law. It's because we just can't see it rightly, and so we need somebody to reveal it. So what Christ does is he comes And he says his aim is to reveal God's law. Verse 17, don't think that I came to abolish it, to throw it away, the law or the prophets. When he's going to use that word, he's basically going to refer to the whole Old Testament. The law is the first five books of the Bible. That includes the promise that God made to create a people, hear this, by grace, not by works of the law. So the first person that is declared righteous in the Bible is Abraham. Genesis chapter 15. It's not until 430 years later that God even writes the law. Do you know what that means? Nobody is ever cured or declared righteous by keeping God's law. If they were, the law would have came first, and then he would have declared some body righteous. So the law, those first five books, are really a testament of God's grace, his standard. Then the prophets, what they do is they're calling people back to the law, saying, hey, y'all are disobeying the way that God has called us, his people, to, to live Live this way, and Christ is saying, don't think that I came to throw that away like it's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a very, very good thing. He's saying, I came to fulfill it, to really reveal it. And then in verse 18, what he's going to say is this, look, for truly I tell you, or he's going to say, listen, for real, for real, listen up. Until heaven and earth pass away, that's meant to show you the eternal aspect of it, right? Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, man, I really hope that heaven and earth stay around today. You know that it's going to be there. And so he says this, look, until it passes away, look, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law, right? That really doesn't make sense to us. But he's saying until it all passes away, nothing's going to change about God's standard." Absolutely nothing. Not the smallest stroke, right? So if you look at the word fun, you could add two small strokes and change it into bun, which completely changes the entire sentence. And what Jesus is saying is, no, no, listen. Nothing's going to change about God. Not the smallest stroke. 
And then he's going to end it off and say this, until all things are accomplished. What does he mean by that? There's some folks that would say um, that all things being accomplished means this, until Jesus dies and raises for our sins, right? Because on the cross, he died and he rose and he said, it is finished. And that means that the law is not important anymore. Well, that can't be what it means. Because he starts off and he says, no, 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 no. Until heaven and earth pass away. And then he goes, until all things are accomplished. Listen, if you read through your Bibles, um, Jesus dying and raising for our sins is not the end of his work. Because once you're done at a work site, do you know what you don't do? Come back. You come back if there's something else that you need to do. Jesus came and when he died and he rose, it was the start of his kingdom. But you and I know that the world is not as it should be. You and I have Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We see people being choked out by cops. You and I have Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We see hurricanes. We see people dying. We see injustice. Things are not as they should be. But one day, God has promised to complete his work. And Jesus is saying, all right, one day I will complete that. But in the meantime, do you know where we are? We're we're in the in-between of God starting and him completing his work. And, and what he's saying is, look, look, in that in-between, God's standard for holiness and his law doesn't change. Jesus came to reveal God's law, not to repeal it. And you say, well, John, how do you reconcile the God of law that we see in the Old Testament And love that we see in the new. And I would say, um, you don't reconcile friends. They aren't at war. What Jesus does is he comes to reveal it. Here's what I mean. Black and white movies. Do you remember a time when you were a kid and you saw a black and white movie? You thought, dag, it's crazy. There used to be a time when the whole world was just in Black and white, when did color come in? I thought that. (laughs) But then, uh, one day I saw an old movie that I'd only seen in black and white, in color. And I thought, wait a minute, how did this take place? Well, what I found out later uh, was there's this process called colorization that they used and what they did was they would take old black and white films and insert color. Now, the reason why films were in black and white was not because the world was in black and white. It was because the equipment that they had at the time could only capture black and white. It was better than nothing, but it wasn't all that it could be. But then what somebody does is they come in and now they refresh the same thing, and somebody says, man, I see this, this uh, movie in a whole new light. So when I'm sitting down with somebody that's only seen the movie in black and white, and they look at a table and they say, man, what color is that? I say brown, and they say, you're crazy. It's drab. It's gray. And what I say is, ah, well, I know all that you see is gray, but look, when it was filmed, 
it was really the color brown. And what takes place is we need somebody else to insert that color so that you can see it for what it is. So many people, when they read the Old Testament and they look at God's laws or God's rules, what they say is, well, that's hate. Exodus 21, one uh, one law that God had was um, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And they say, that's hate. That feels barbaric. That feels vengeful. That feels drab. And I say, I think you're seeing it in black and white. Um, What Jesus does is he reveals that that is not hate. That is the God of love expressing himself in a context that we couldn't grasp before. But now as we look through Jesus, what we see is something completely new. And here's what I mean by that. We look at the law and eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we say, well, let's throw that out because that's the old God. That's this God of hate. And what I say is, well, now you have to keep reading. Because what you see with the God of the Bible is he was so different. Israel was so different than any other ancient Near East culture. He valued the dignity of anybody created in his image. So even when it said an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, it was metaphorical. So people aren't just gouging out folks' eyes back then. He brings it up as an example of equity, justice. Justice for people that are defenseless. You keep reading in Exodus, and do you know what you see? Right after it says that, it presents this case of somebody that's in power, a master, gouging out the eye of of his servant. And do you know what it says? I'm going to be impartial. The rich are not going to get favorable treatment. This servant who is defenseless, if you do that, it's not just that he gets to gouge your eye out. He gets to go free. So what takes place is it's this God of love caring for the defenseless, the poor, and the weak, protecting them. God's heart is revealed in the law. Jesus comes to reveal it, not to repeal it or to take it away. And the question that I would ask, and the thing that you just have to work through is this, is God lays out his standard of morality. One thing that you have to ask yourself, would our world be better or worse if people applied? Would your world be better or worse? I guarantee You're frustrated at certain people in your life right now when you feel a sense of bitterness and anxiety because there are certain things that are clear that they have not kept. So the law, God's standard, is a good thing. Jesus comes to reveal that. And I just want to keep that there as we move on just to help you to see this. Look. While the laws are always an expression of the lawgiver, I just want you to know that if God is really a God that doesn't change, then his standard doesn't change either. 
So it's not helpful to think of the Old Testament as furniture that can be thrown out now that Christ is here. Think of it more as the very foundation, the floorboards. If you start to mess with that foundation, the whole house is going to sink. Jesus said that he came to reveal the law, not to repeal it. But then he goes on in verse 19 to 20. I think the point that he's trying to get at is this. The law is always good, but it's never enough. The law is always good. It's always a good thing, but it's never quite enough. There's a phrase that I'm sure you all have heard of it when you've maybe tried to cook a dish for the first time. Um, The phrase goes like this, uh, that's not good enough. Maybe you try real hard to do something or to impress somebody, and they say, that's not good enough. The phrase not good enough is this. It's both an affirmation. Well, no, no, no. It's good, but it's also an admittance. Ah, but what you did was good, but it's not good enough. Look here at verse 19. He goes on and says, Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of of heaven, but whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's what I mean. God's law, God's standard for us, it's always supposed to be a way of life but it's never supposed to be a way to life, all right? It's a way of life, verse 19. What he says is this. Look, whoever does and teaches these things will be called great. Whoever breaks them or teaches anybody to relax on them that they're not important will be called least. So what we see there is that the law is somehow tied to our standing in the kingdom, but here's what I love. The law keepers and those that do it, as well as those in here that are law breakers, they still find themselves in the kingdom. What a gracious God that he would provide entrance into his kingdom. And we're going to get to how, but to people that break the law. But what he says is this, look, they'll be called great or least. It's basically saying, right, not that, all right, well, when you come in, you're going to have this seat, and when you come in, you're going to have this seat. If we all get into God's kingdom, we're going to be grateful for whatever seat that we get. What he's saying here in the world, there are people that are actually better or worse representations of what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. So verse 19 is, look, look, Whoever does these things and teaches these things, right? God's law is useful as evidence to show that somebody's been brought in. But it's terrible if you try to use it as a ticket for entrance. Here's one more law. I'm going to use it and see if I can make this point. In Leviticus chapter 19, God wrote this law about this. 
farmers, when you farm and you get this crop and you start to bring in your crop, you are not, you cannot, you should not, as God's people, glean to the edge of the fields. What that meant was that as you start to harvest, right, leave the corners of the field full of crops, right? So if you have a plate full of food, and you go to a restaurant, and you can eat all of what's on your plate, don't. Save some. Even if you can eat it all, save some in a doggy bag so that when you leave, you have some to give to the poor. Metaphorically, that's what he means. He wanted to create a group of people who made all that they could, but they didn't keep all of what they could. They left some for the poor. Why did God put that into law? Because God wanted his people to be distinct. Here's what you find out. Every kingdom has poor people that are in it. In the world, people that are poor are an inconvenience. They're a drain on resources. We want to do our best to get them out to keep them out. But in God's kingdom, what God says is that even though there will be folks that are poor, which, side note, contradicts anything in the Bible that would say just because you walk with God, he's going to make you wealthy. That's just not true. But the thing is this, look, but amongst God's people, those that are poor should never have to feel the dire effects of being poor. So in the rest of the world, people can starve to death. They will starve to death. But in God's house, among God's people, if anybody here doesn't have anything to eat, it should be a place that's full of, well, we could have kept all of what we had, but we didn't glean to the edge of the fields. Why didn't we glean into the edge of the fields? Because we were poor in spirit at one point. The the apostle Paul's going to say it like this. Y'all didn't know that y'all were poor, but Christ, who was rich, became poor for your sake, took your fate so that through his poverty, you might become rich. And those of us that have experienced that live in such a way that we would say, I know what it's like to be without, and I know what it's like to receive grace. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to live in such a way where everything that I do, all my money, all my time, all the extra square footage that I have, all the discretionary resources that I have are free and available because they evidence that I've experienced God's grace. Now, listen, and verse 19 says, anybody that would come in and say, well, technically, if you look at the context, that was for farmers. You want a farmer so you don't really have to keep that. Anybody that would come in and try to get you to relax off of that standard is somebody that may in fact be in God's kingdom, but they're going to be a lesser representation of who this God is. That's what he's trying to get here. It's evidence that we've been transformed, but listen, it's terrible. It will not work as entrance. So this is meant for you to show the world that you've been bought by God, but those good deeds 
are not meant for you to stand in front of God and say, look at how much I gave to the poor. I'm sure you love me more now than before I gave. In other words, the good works that God has called us to do, uh, they make a great leader, but a terrible ladder. They point us in the right direction, but they do not have the ability to elevate us to the standard that God lays out. It would be like this. If you were going to leave from here and go to South Africa, what direction, all right, yeah, yeah, we got a few in here. What direction would you have to head in? This is not a trick question, y'all can answer. South, right? What if I told you, all right, in order to get there, Leave from here, walk about a mile east, get on MARTA. MARTA's going to take you south to airport station, right? And that's going to be your first step. What would you say to the person that gets on the train, stays on that train, gets to the end of the line, and gets out of the train, and starts to try to build track? so that airport station won't be the end of the stop. They get out and they say, the mission that I have in life is to build enough train track so that this train can take me all the way to South Africa. What you would say is, you're going to work very hard. You're going to have a shorter life, and you're not going to get to where you're going. Why? Because although the train was good and that it started you in the right direction, it lacks the elevation to take you to where you need to go. There is, there is not a train track that spans oceans. The purpose of that train was to show you the direction that you need to head in. To get you to a place to say, this is as far as I can go. And for you to transfer vehicles, to get off of the train, to get onto a plane, and to be carried to a destination, not by how hard you flap your wings, but how well you can rest in the seat. What Jesus is saying right here is, look, 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 look. God's law, it's good. It's just not good enough. It's going to get you to a place where you're going to come to the end of yourselves and you have two options. To keep on working and think that you being on that train of law is your ticket or for you to say the law was actually led to lead me to a place where I could transfer my trust from my ability just to follow directions. Look, 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 look. And a rest on this plane that's going to carry me in the same direction. But the point is this. Everybody that walks with Jesus is headed in the direction of righteousness. It's foolish for somebody to say, I'm headed to South Africa. I've gotten off of that train, but I got on a plane that's headed north. You're headed in the wrong direction, so whatever plane you got on is not going to take you to your destination. It will take you to a destination, but just not the one that you hope for. 
It's a good leader. It gets us started in the right direction. But it's a terrible ladder. And what the Lord Jesus does right here is he's going to take righteousness and God's standards to new heights by revealing the depths of what God actually requires. And so, like I said, this is the hinge point. So in the weeks to come, what he's going to do is he's going to help every one of us that feel good about how well we're obeying God's law. He's going to help you see your performance is good. It's just not good enough. So he's going to talk about murder. And you may look and say, well, I've never killed anybody. And he's going to say, well, that's good. But let me add a little bit of color to the black and white thing that you see here. Really, murder starts in the heart. It starts with hatred. Have you hated anybody? Ah, Well, that seed planted in the right conditions would eventually bring murder. You just may not have been in the right conditions, but your seed's going to sprout the same fruit as it did in Jeffrey Dahmer. And so folks step back and say, well, that's harsh. Ah, but let's go through the rest rest of the 10. At least I've never committed adultery. And he's going to say, well... Let me bring color. Have you lusted after anybody? Well, yeah, well, that same seed planted in conditions. If you had the money to remain anonymous, the access, the planes, the way to remain discreet and to ensure that you wouldn't get caught, that seed, they have sprouted. So basically, you're guilty of the same thing. And one by one, he's just going to pick off everybody that feels like they're okay. So regardless of what you feel, he's going to be like, I've got you. So that what you see is this. In the same way that laws reveal the hearts of the lawmakers... Laws reveal the hearts of the lawbreakers. Because they say, well, the person that gave that law, I think that it's a bad law. I don't trust them. I don't love them. I'm not going to submit to that law, which is an indictment on God. Even law keepers, their hearts are revealed. Because Jesus is going to say, what's most important is not just that you do the right thing, but your motives and why you do the right thing. Because even if you do the right thing for the wrong reason, it's the wrong thing. If you obey God's law because you relate to him in a transactional manner, if I do this, then God will bless me, then what that reveals about our heart is that you don't see God for who he is, glorious, the God and the ruler. You see God as a servant. Somebody that will give you what you want so long as you give him what he wants. And even if you don't see him as a servant, you see him as an equal. Somebody that you can transact with. I give you this, then you give me this. And so long as things go both ways, we don't have any problems. If you see God as an equal, then what you've done is you've brought him off of his throne. 
And so as we grumble against God, because God, I did all of this stuff, but, but you didn't give me what you should have. It's showing that you, 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 don't, you don't see God as God. You see him as somebody else. And to bring a king off of their throne is to commit treason. That's what sin is. It's treason. I wonder how you use God's law. I wonder if you confuse the prescription that God gave us in his law with the medicine that you actually need. This law is starting to reveal the problem is not with your hands. The problem is with a decaying heart of which all of us have. And you do not fix a decaying heart by washing your hands. It's to confuse the prescription for the medicine. It would be like somebody suffering from a heart attack. And they need Tylenol to help ease the pain a bit until they can get to the hospital. And they read the label and the label says to take two and ingest. And what they do is they rip off the instructions of two bottles and swallow them. The instructions weren't meant to be ingested. The instructions of how you're supposed to live or what you're supposed to do will not cure you. And if you rely on the instructions and swallow those, not only is it not going to fix your heart attack, it's only going to cause more problems. It was meant to point you to the medicine. And it is in relying and trusting on the medicine that your heart is cured. Something more is needed than just you being more righteous than the more righteous, the most righteous person that you know. Do you know what's needed? Do you know how you get into God's kingdom? Two ways. Perfection being absolutely perfect, meaning there are no marks on your record. And we all know that we're, we're not that. But the gracious thing that God revealed in his law was not just his standard, but how people would be brought in. So for everybody that was not perfect, God had these ceremonial laws that were in place. And what it was is you would take this spotless Lamb, And again, since God has a heart for the poor, if you couldn't afford this lamb, then what you could do is there were doves, right? You can give what you can afford, but you would take the innocent and it would be slain on behalf of the guilty. So two ways that you can get into God's kingdom. Be perfect or be good or winsome enough to have to convince somebody that was perfect to do the hard work of living the life that you should have lived and then dying for you, a payment. The question is, do you have either? Have you been perfect 
not by just the hands, but even your motivations. See, the scribes and the Pharisees were people that spent their lives studying God's law and meticulously practicing it. But one of the things that they did was they would find loopholes in the law to justify themselves. And it's the search for a loophole that reveals you don't want the law to be your guide. You want acceptance and you're going to twist things however you can to get there. So what do we do for those of us that would say, John, I am not perfect. And I can't even get people that, are, that like me to pay for a meal. We look to God. And what we see is that God is so gracious that God provides what he requires. That what we see in the Lord Jesus is somebody that lived with absolute perfection. You talk about murder, the root of it being anger, and what you see is you say, well, wait a minute, John. Jesus got angry, and and I would say yes. But when he got angry, people were better as a result of it. He went into a building where people were supposed to meet God and saw that people had used God's laws, the things that he set up in place, to advance their own agendas. He saw people being marginalized from God, and his anger leads him to turn over tables, drive things in a way, to set things right. His anger was healing. Jesus is going to talk about marriage and divorce, and what we see throughout the rest of the Bible is Jesus is going to compare himself to a faithful husband who in accordance to the law has every right to divorce his unfaithful bride that has messed up with their standard, but he doesn't. You talk about turning the other cheek. Jesus, who had every right to enforce God's justice of equitable punishment for people that actively had him on the cross, And he doesn't speak words of justice, but mercy. God, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And it's not just that he shows mercy to people. He shows it to his enemies. You talk about giving to the poor and not gleaning the edges of the field. Jesus met God's standard, lives perfectly, earns God's love shows that he is worthy for God's love to be fully poured out on him. And do you know what he takes his perfection and does? He doesn't just revel and enjoy it. He comes down and he gives not just the edges of his field, but he gives everything that he worked for. So that all of us who have found ourselves incredibly poor, can sit back, look at what God has done, and worship him. He doesn't just give the poor the edges of one field in a kingdom, 
But like Matthew 5, 3 says, this blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So that you and I don't have to transactionally relate to God, which is tiring and exhausting. That train stops way short of the kingdom. If you transactionally relate with God and try to obey him, it may work for a while, but what you'll find out is that you'll get to a point where he doesn't give you what you think that you've earned. And you'll be angry and upset, and you say, I'm going to get off this train, and eventually you're going to head in another direction. But since Jesus promises to fulfill this law in the truest sense, what that means is that you and I head in the direction of our God. So we walk with Jesus, but we transfer our trust from our ability to keep his law, and we say, God, I want to rest. I want this to take place. I want my performance to be detached from your acceptance. I want to live with the freedom to know that in spite of the wavering that may come, your love will never waver. And that only takes place as you and I do this. Somebody's performance is going to be touched with the acceptance of God. And your choice is this. Do I want to live the rest of my life and say, God, I want my performance to determine how you feel about me? Or what you can say is, God, I found myself untrustworthy enough. I don't want that to take place. God, I want you to treat me based on the performance of Jesus, the only one who didn't just fulfill the letter of the law, but the intent of the law. And I want to be able to rest in that so that even when my performance wavers, I can look and be confident, God, that your love and acceptance for me has not changed. And do you know what? What he's saying right here is that is actually the fuel that leads you to obey God's law. That is actually the fuel that leads you to walk right in step with God's law. Nobody that has put their confidence in the Lord Jesus and feels the security that comes from God Nobody that does that, the Apostle John is going to say, is spends their life doing what they want to do. They're all going to walk right in step with him. So hear this. When our performance wavers, when you and I walk in a way that is contrary to God's law, It is not legalistic or hateful for one of our brothers and sisters to come and to say, something is not adding up. Listen, 
not in a way that condemns us, because if we've really put our confidence in Jesus, there's nothing in the law to condemn us. But it is to redirect us. It is to say, God does have a standard on how you and I treat the the poor. And sometimes, it's not even that we actively fight against it, but we can just be forgetful. But why are we forgetful? Because you and I can be so consumed with our own lives and the comforts that we have, and we can forget that God has left us here in this world to be a representation of him. So somebody comes along and says, remember what God said to us about how we should live, and it's no way an indictment on you. It's just saying, hey, look, God's law is here for our good, to redirect us. It's not your ticket in. But it is evidence. It's the stamp on your ticket to show that you've actually really been there. And when we step back, transfer our trust from our performance and say, God, I am so thankful for what you've done that I don't care where you call me or what you've called me to do. I'm going to spend the rest of my life showing my gratitude towards you by redirecting my life. Everybody that walks with Jesus walks like Jesus. And that means that you're in step with God's law every step of the way. They aren't in conflict. One embodies the other. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us in here a people that are confident and rejoice in the work that your son did for us, Father. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't loosen your standard at all. But if anything, you would remind us our acceptance in you because of what your son has done, it's secure. And so now as people that just wait for you to bring about your kingdom, we can spend the rest of our lives being representations of you where we're unsure about what you've called us to do, Father. I pray that you would provide guidance and direction where our consciences condemn us because we haven't lived up to a standard. Would you remind us that Christ has done it for us, Father. Where we lack the strength to keep going, I pray that you would fill us with that strength, Father. I pray that you would make us a holy church that's different so that people that are longing for a very real expression of you, a God that is so other, would see that in us and it would point them to you. Father, help us. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.